Well, good morning. All righty. Well, we are so glad you could join us this morning, especially because that means you're healthy. Um, like Cap was saying, unfortunately, sickness is working its way through so many people uh, in our church, including the Aples. Carrie was actually supposed to preach this sermon uh, this week, but um, they are currently still at the house recovering. So um, you can say an extra prayer of grace for me this morning. Um, this was a little bit more swiftly prepared than typical. But uh, if you're a visitor with us, if you don't know me, my name is John Mark. I'm one of the, the pastors here at Christ Church. Um, and what we've been doing is walking through the book of Malachi. We take a book at a time and we walk through it. Um, and that's where we're at right now. We're about two-thirds of the way through, um, or three-fourths, I guess, because there's four chapters, uh, working our way through um, the, the book of Malachi. So that's where we're going to be this morning. So Malachi 3, verse 5. Let's turn to it and read, and then let's pray. Just one verse this morning, and it says this. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through it, we can know you. Father, I ask that you would show us yourself this morning through your word. Draw us close to you. Draw us to repentance and faith through your word this morning. Father, for those that are sick, we pray healing. And we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So um, in sixth grade, when I was in sixth grade, not when you, um, in sixth grade, I, our family got a, a new computer. And this may be weird for, for children, for youth, uh, for young people to think like, one computer seems weird, but it was like the thing. You got a family computer. Do you guys remember this age of the world where like, you know, you, you reached a certain level of requirement of school and you got the family computer and it sat on a big desk and the monitor was like the size of me, you know, but the screen was somehow this big. Um, but that was, that's what we had. And on this thing, this was before the internet really took off. This was the days of dial-up and AOL and the you've got mail kind of generation. Um, so there wasn't, there wasn't Wikipedia or anything, but on this computer came um, the Encyclopedia Britannica. Do you guys remember that? I mean, I'm sure some of you remember, like, we remember the books, John. Uh, but yeah, there were, there were the, the uh, entire encyclopedia downloaded on this thing that came formatted, and I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. Um, my brain is wired in such a way that I love information, like trivial information, things that probably mean nothing to the majority of people, but I was really excited that I opened it up, and like the first thing in there was like a, a paragraph about A.A. A. Milne, which was the author of Winnie the Pooh, you know, and like I knew way too much about that for a sixth grade boy, just because it was the first thing I could read, but I found it fascinating from, you know, A.A. A. Milne to Zimbabwe, I would read everything, wanted to consume that information, uh, found it fascinating. 
it's an odd curiosity that I have that I've never been able to quench. And my brain is wired for that kind of information. The reason why I bring that up is because, um, you know, it, it's grown. Like, I, I love to consume that. But when we, when we approach texts like this, right, we can get lost because there's no context for it. Because we do not exist in, you know, um, 500 B.C. Jerusalem. And so there's a lot of things that... Um, we need to do, and my brain is wired in such a way that I want to put it in context. I want to put, uh, put, put stories like these and things in, in that historical timeline in my brain, so I need context for what's happening, especially, like I said, when we have verses like this. It's just one verse by itself for a text on a Sunday morning, and it definitely helps us see the whole picture of the text, right? Because this was a heavy text. This was, okay, I will come and I will judge, and then it proceeds to list out the ways in which he's judging. So if you would indulge me for just a minute, I'm going to kind of give you the way my brain operates and put uh, Malachi in a historical context for you this morning. So if you remember from our previous times, Malachi was writing to people of Israel, writing to the people of Israel, and this was the same time frame as, as Nehemiah. And what that means is that during this time, the, the, the people of God who were exiled and were captive under Babylon, and so if, if you're putting this in your frame of reference, this is think Daniel in the lion's den, think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, you know, in the, the fiery furnace. You have those kind of um, moments happening in this, in this exile under Babylon, and then Babylon moves away and it's the Persians and the Medes, and then during this time, you have these Hebrew exiles who, under the Persians, begin to get the privilege to, to return back to Jerusalem and back to Ju Judah and to Cana and to where they were, where they're, they're the land of their fathers. And so that's kind of where we're at in this. And so what you see in, in droves over the last generation or so before Malachi, the people of Israel have been returning to the land of their fathers. So this time period is known uh, in biblical history as the post-exile or post-exile, uh, oh man, I can't say that word, post-exile, we're just going to go with that, practice that word before I got up here, um, but what that means is, is after the exile, and now we have, uh, what's, been ha what's happened is uh, these Hebrew people have been allowed to return to Jerusalem. And so this, this returning is not some altruistic benevolence, right, of the Persian kings. Rather, this was a calculated play. You have a large number of these dispersed people without a home, and there were more mouths to feed, more, more um, people to manage, and they were growing in number, and they were, that meant that the, the people were harder to control and to keep in line. But if they let them have these lands back, they can still operate these lands, and then they can be governed and controlled, and then be, be made to pay tribute to the Persian king. And so the people of Israel were, were free to return to the land of their fathers, but this freedom was, was not just a blanket freedom, this was more of a, an indentured servitude, a, a, a guise for freedom. And so that's where these people are at, right, as we pick up this story of Malachi. 
They're back in their homeland, and they've been given some freedoms that they had not known for generations. And, and you have these things that are happening. Jerusalem is being rebuilt up. The temple has been rebuilt and restored. And this, this temple is a, a symbol for hope for the Jewish people. And so you have these things happening, and, and this is where uh, Malachi is speaking, the, with this return to the promised land, with the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, if you look, there also came at this same time the book of Haggai. There's a prophecy that happens in that. If you want to know more about this time period, you can flip over to Haggai chapter 2 and read it for yourself. But the ministry of Haggai uh, is happening in, uh, roughly the same time as Malachi. And this prophecy that's happening there is this calling of the people to repentance, to walk with God as they await this, this prophecy to come true that the people, the nation of Israel, would be restored. Now, ultimately, this, this prophecy is pointing to Christ, but the people are looking for some sort of present worldly restoration. And so this is where we speak, the, the calling of the people to repentance, to walk with God as they await the fulfillment of his promises, this prophecy of Haggai that foretold the, the coming of the Messiah and how the world would be blessed through him. But you see, in the midst of this, the hearts of the people were still hardened to the truth. It led people to assume in, in this hardness of heart that the, this, this foretelling was this rebuilding of the temple. It meant that Israel would be returned to a position of power and influence as a nation in the world. And so what you have in Malachi is a frustration of the people in the hardness of heart. They're not seeing the Messiah to come. They're seeing what is, in their, their view, unfulfilled promises and difficult situations. The reality of what they, they thought was not matching up to the observations of what was happening. And so much like you and I, when we're faced with these difficult situations, we, we tend not to see past the ends of our noses, and this is exactly where they're at. They're expecting an, an earthly answer, right, to a spiritual problem. And so all of this, right, you have the temple being rebuilt, the land being restored to them, but at the same time, with those things, you also have this privation, this struggle that is happening in their social life and economic life because what they have is being taken from them. And they are in, in a, an indentured servitude or slavery as a people, and so in their heart there is this, this stagnation that's happening in the hearts of the people. And while they were uh, they were not drawing near to God as they struggled, but mere, merely giving God a religious lip service. And so that's what we've been seeing over these past few weeks of looking at this. It is not a drawing near to God, but merely just a religious lip service that they're offering. And so they're back in their homeland. Though the temple is restored, the people are calloused, cynical complainers. Right? That's what we've been seeing throughout all of Malachi as we've been studying. This cycle of just callous, cynical complaining. Yes, socially and politically they were oppressed. The Persian rulers were taking everything and they had little freedoms. They were stuck in the muck and mire of these unfulfilled wishes and misunderstood prophecies. 
And so we get to the text last week, right? And we saw them questioning God. And it uses this term. It says, they are wearying God with nonstop complaints. And so look at verse 17 of chapter 2. It literally says, they have wearied God with their words. They assumed that since nothing seemed to be happening, that God must think these people that are doing these evil things that they're witnessing, that, that God must think that these people are good in the sight of God. And so that's the claim they're levying against God is, okay, the people who do wrong must be good in your sight, right? And then they, they're mocking God by asking this question that we looked at last week, right? The, where is the God of justice? It's as if to say, God, you're, you're not doing anything to stop the sins against the people here by these outsiders, so you must not be a just God. And this is where we find the hearts of the people. And this is why I wanted to spend so much time kind of framing this for us, because it is important to see this is, this is where they're at. This is the environment, the culture to which Malachi is, is speaking, right? Malachi, whose name means my messenger, the messenger of the Lord, was proclaiming a message of repentance and of love to the people of God. So brothers and sisters, as we dive in this morning, what a, what a callous and dangerous place for these people to be, right? To question God's justice and goodness, because that's what they're doing. They're questioning God's justice and goodness, while at the very same time claiming those things as their right and property. Like, like you, you, you are not showing justice to these people. You're not condemning these people who are doing bad to us. They're questioning God's justice and his goodness, but then demanding those things of themselves and for themselves. These men and women have fooled themselves by their own unrighteousness and self-righteousness. And here's what I mean by that. And let this be a, a cautionary tale for us this morning, right? Self-righteousness in our hearts when left unchecked. Self-righteousness in our hearts when left unchecked will confuse personal entitlement, this idea of fairness, with genuine justice. These people were hurting. They were oppressed. They were struggling under the servitude that these freedoms had brought them. But they were not walking with God and trusting in him. Rather, their hearts were far from them. You see, as they had returned from exile, the, the prominent element in their religious observance was this pharisaical spirit. What I mean by this is this, the, the, prom, the predominant element in their religious observance was this proud and bigoted self-righteousness that claimed God's love and favor with this insolent haughtiness, this, this the idea of so-called doing right and so receiving right. They did the so-called right things for the right ways, therefore God has to love them, and God has to honor that. And so this is what Malachi is reminding them of, of these last few chapters, right? 
That this is not, it is not this lip service that you are providing. This, this haughty behavior, this so-called right things for the right ways, for the right reasons, or whatever that you think you're doing. This pharisaical attitude. And so they were claiming his favor. They were claiming his love at the very moment by their actions and by their hardness of heart. They were forfeiting that favor and love. In unbelief and in the dereliction of duty before God. Their hard-hearted self-righteousness mocks the genuine justice of God. And they're doing this by wanting to apply it to others without applying it to themselves. And so we arrived at that question last week, right? Where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? And so last week, we saw that question, that accusation really made to God. And the response was twofold, right? We discussed the first part last week where it says that the Lord whom you seek is coming and he will be like a refining fire, purifying his people. And it's interesting, right, that they pointed out the Lord that you seek, the Lord that you are proclaiming, where is this God? This God is here and he's here um, and he is a, a refining fire for his people. And then we arrive at the second part, right? Um, the Lord is coming to purify the hearts of his people, but he's also coming to judge the world. And so that's where we arrive at our text this morning. God is responding to the question from last week, where is the God of justice? And look how he breaks down his justice. He says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerer, against the adulterer, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, against those who oppress the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And so he says, you want genuine justice. You want the God of justice. This is what it looks like. This is what it is. He says he will be a swift witness, right? Like, just that idea, right, the, the, the finality of that statement. I will come. It's a personal thing. God is personally coming, and he will be a witness. He will testify against these people, against the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who lie and swear falsely, those who oppress the worker, the widow, the orphan, those who waylay the sojourner, and those who do not fear the Lord. In, in short, what he just did is said that God is coming to judge the world, and he is holding accountable the very things that the people of God are guilty of. And so, if you look throughout the last two chapters, if you see all that we have been talking about, 
over these last few weeks. God is calling his people to repentance. He is calling them to the carpet and saying, this is, this is the thing. These are the things that I am calling out in your hearts, in your lives. These are the very things that God has called his people to account for. Uh, the, the polluted offerings that we see in verse or in chapter one being offered, this, this idea of breaking covenant and worshiping what is not of God and what is evil. This is this idea of, of sorcery, right? He is going to judge the adulterer, those who are not faithful in the covenants they keep, whether to God or to their spouse. And so he is judging them in the oppression of others. And so you have, you have this, this fact that they are, they are asking for the God of justice right? They're asking for God to come and be just, but they are so hard-hearted and blind that they do not see that the, in, the, in the coming of God to judge that they themselves stand condemned. And they are actually lamenting, right, the delays of God's justice. But you see, it is not, it is not out of God's uh, absenteeism or lack of, of care that he is delaying this justice, but it is out of kindness and patience that he has not carried out his justice, right? Because his justice brings judgment on these very people. And you see the justice is, is guaranteed, right? This genuine justice is guaranteed. And by that I mean it will surely come. His genuine justice is guaranteed to be equally poured out on all. And so in his love and kindness and patience, he is, is uh, um, patiently enduring. And we see this over and over again, right? This, this guarantee of justice throughout the Old Testament. A couple verses just to, to drive this point home. Uh, Isaiah 46, 12 and 13. Isaiah reminds the people, he says, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteous. The Lord says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and the day of my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. And then again in Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 3, he says, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nation. The day of the Lord is guaranteed to happen. And the people of Israel are asking for the God of justice. Because they can only see the injustice done to them. They are blind to the injustices running rampant in their own hearts and lives. And so they ask for the very thing that will crush them. But then you have this idea, it is the kindness of the Lord that has delayed that justice. And here's what I mean by that. Flip over to 2 Peter chapter two. 2 Peter chapter two. It seems Peter here is addressing the same issue of the people's hearts, seeing how God's justice is too slow. 2 Peter chapter two. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so it says this idea of patience of the Lord toward us has delayed this justice. Why? So that we should reach repentance. You see, as these Old Testament Hebrews were so blinded by their own sin and unable to see the grace of God calling them to repentance, right? Through the messenger, through Malachi, my messenger, who came with a message of God's love, right? That's how this text begins. I have loved you, says the Lord. So Malachi opens this oracle from the Lord with that statement of God's love for his people. And then he calls them to repentance and now we arrive at this reminder that his judgment and justice will surely come. It will not tarry forever, but for a time by God's patience, he withholds his justice so that those who are, are faithful may be refined in the fire of Christ's love. Brothers and sisters, the danger for us and for these Israelites is, is twofold. One would be if, if you are consumed with what is just or justice, or judgment, and you feel that what it, it should be given out to others, you're consumed with the idea of other people getting what they deserve. You are bitterly awaiting their destruction, as these Israelites were. Bitterly awaiting God to do something for you. Right? This was the heart that they had. This is a call for you to remember your own sinfulness. A call for you to repent of this self-righteousness, of this stubbornness, and let the patience of God work in your heart and draw you to repentance. You see, it is, it is for your good that the kindness of the Lord And patience of the Lord is withholding this. The second danger would be this temptation, right? This temptation for these Israelites and for us. That we would let the, the Lord's delay in judgment, the delay in his coming, right? The Lord that you... Um, the Lord that you seek when he comes, right? That's how uh, the beginning of chapter three phrases it. It's this idea of this temptation that we would become complacent waiting on the Lord that we would settle into this world and become passive as we wait. To become passive and bitter at what is um, fair in their own eyes. What is not being right, right? And they, they settle into this, this complacency and they forget who they are. They forget that they were aliens and exiles 
just a century ago, and they have been brought back to their land with this promise of, of a kingdom to come. And they're thinking in their, in their own hearts and in their own minds, it must be an earthly kingdom. And they're becoming complacent, saying, okay, we'll just, we'll just live here and dwell here in this world. And they forget that they are aliens and exiles, sojourners and strangers on this earth, that they are seeking another homeland that they are desiring and yearning a better country. They have lost sight of the fact, the danger is that we could lose sight of the fact that this place is not our homeland, that this location, whether that is Cana in, in Jerusalem or whether that is here in Kingwood, this is not our home, but we belong to the kingdom of heaven. And so Hebrews reminds us of this, right, by calling back to these people, and you, you have it in chapter 11, all these, these throwbacks to the people of faith in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, 13 picks it up and says, all these have died in faith without receiving the promise of the kingdom to come, right? Uh, all these have died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of a country from which they went out of, they would have the opportunity to return. And so this is reminding them that they are not speaking of an earthly kingdom and a country to which they left, they could return to. But he says, as it is, they desire a better country, and that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to remember to not become complacent as we await the timing of the Lord. This is not our home. If you are in Christ, we, we have a desire for a better country, right? A heavenly home. For these men and women in, in this time period, they came back to Jerusalem. They came back to the land of their fathers. But even in that moment, there was this calling, this is not the end, this is not your home. And that is our reminder too, this is not our home. There will be time when, when times when God's timing seems short or seems too long. But hear this, brothers and sisters. Genuine justice will surely come. That is the message here. I will draw near to you for judgment. Genuine justice will surely come. And we will be held to it. And if we who are in Christ... When that moment comes, it will be his righteousness credited to us and so that we can remember the words of Peter, right? When he ends Second uh, Peter in chapter three, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. And then count the patience of our Lord as salvation. He is reminding us, brothers and sisters, we are to be diligent in pursuing peace and love and to be found in Christ. And so if you are, if you are not in Christ this morning, right, I don't want to be heavy-handed. These, these can be, um, the, these topics of justice and of judgment can feel heavy-handed, um, 
And I don't want to do that just for the sake of an emotion, but I want you to be aware that the day of judgment will surely come. There will be a day of judgment. And on that day, we who are in Christ can cling to him, cling to the cross of Christ. And therefore, like the text from last week, right, be purified by the refiner's fire. And if not, we will surely face judgment for our sins. And if you are not in Christ, you stand condemned. If you look back in Malachi, the warning over and over again is, is that this idea of, you know, for, for the, those who are not faithful, it is not only will I curse your blessings, but they have already been that way. It is, a, it is an already achieved fact. Judgment will surely come. If you have not found salvation in the name of Jesus, we're going to pray here in a little bit. And there are people in the back who are willing to talk to you. You can come grab the pastor um, or, or uh, one of the elders. We'd love to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the difficult texts that draw us to yourself. Father, let us not be self-righteous and arrogant, but let us lay down our pride at the foot of the cross. Father, we await your return, and we await with hope in the forgiveness found in your Son. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.